The world that we live in right now is commonly referred to by historians as the information age, okay? Or some refer to it as the knowledge economy, but the whole point is that knowledge is power, right? So um, there's a big emphasis on qualifications, courses, seminars, trainings, education, all that sort of stuff. Now, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with certificates, diplomas, degrees, postgraduate. Many of you have uh, some of those sorts of things. But I think that in the last 100 years, there's been almost so much information, so much information kind of produced that it's kind of more than we can actually handle, more than we can process. And so let me just give you an example of this. It's estimated that in the daily edition of the New York Times, there is more written information in one day's newspaper than the average person in England in the 17th century would come across in their whole lifetime. And so this information that we've kind of, you know, just been bombarded with is actually far more accessible now. And you would know that you can literally Google almost anything, right? The internet has been a really, really powerful thing. So let me just give you some statistics about uh, the internet. There is around about 4.6 billion people who have access uh, to online around the world. That's just over 60%. But interestingly, half or around about half of Half of the world are on social media, which uh, I find fascinating. A couple of other statistics here about mobile phones and online shopping. You may be uh, some of those sorts of people. But this is what happens on the internet every minute. So you'll see there, every minute, there is 4.7 million YouTube videos viewed, 400 new Facebook users, 60,000 Instagram uh, pictures uploaded, 200 million emails are sent every minute, um, which is pretty crazy. A whole lot of Google searches and then a whole lot of tweets. Obviously, one less tweet now that Donald Trump is off uh, Twitter. Anyway, um, so the amount of digital data that we have is just kind of overwhelming, and it's, it's, it's getting more and more. So every two years, the amount of digital data produced doubles. So it's estimated but by the year 2025 we are going to have, in our digital universe, 175 zettabytes. Now, just to kind of put that into perspective, one zettabyte is a billion terabytes. Some of you have just got this blank look, like, what are you talking about, okay? Well, if you want to get super geeky about it, your computer or your laptop might have a few gigabytes, might even have a terabyte as its memory, as its storage, that's what we're talking about for the whole world. So just how about I give you like a bit of a visual cue here. So 175 zettabytes would be um, a stack of DVDs. You might remember, you might remember these DVDs, <laughs> sort of on the way out. But anyway, DVDs, stack of DVDs that would, one on top of the other, which would circle the earth 222 times, okay? That's how much 175 zettabytes is. Or if you were going to download 175 zettabytes on your normal internet speed connection, fiber, it would take you 1.8 billion years, <laughs> which is possibly a long time to wait. Don't even think about it on dial-up. Right, so anyway, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of knowledge that we have access to, but my question is, does it make a difference? Who does this statue represent? Pardon? 
Humpty Dumpty. How do you know that? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Nowhere in that rhyme does it say that Humpty Dumpty is shaped like an egg. Or is an egg. Yet you'll use your knowledge to figure that out. I think there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I think often we equate having knowledge with being wise, but I think there is some very distinct differences between the two. So there was a guy called William Durant. He was an American historian and an author. Uh, He, together with his wife, wrote uh, The Story of Civilization. And it's an epic um, history of the world, essentially. It took him over 50 years to research and write all these volumes. 10 volumes, or sorry, 11 volumes, 10,000 pages of writing, over 4 million words. He wrote it all, he categorized, he looked at the world, and this is one thing that he said. He wrote this, science is organized knowledge, wisdom is organized life. And I think, actually, the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that wisdom is knowledge applied, right? Wisdom is the ability to put into practice what we know to make things work, to make life better, or in William Durant's words, to make life organized. And so think about it. How often do you meet someone and they are just super knowledgeable? Like they know all the facts and the figures, they know statistics, they know information, data, trivia. They're the type of person that you want on your team when you're in the chase, you know, that game show. And probably because they'll be on the chase, they'll be solving the Rubik's Cube with one hand, they'll be playing Beethoven on a piano with the other hand, or something crazy like that. They're just that, that smart. But they have virtually no social skills, virtually no practical skills. You know, they couldn't change a flat tire on a car, they couldn't bake a cake, they have limited friends, they have heaps of knowledge, but they cannot apply that to life. And so I would agree uh, with William Durant. I think that wisdom is organized life. But I think that true wisdom is actually deeper and more broader than just having your life organized. So think of the wisest person you know. Now, I can see a lot of you are looking at me, which is a little bit awkward. But think of the wisest person you know. Now, you might be just as intelligent as them. They might be slightly more intelligent than you. They might be just as practical as you. They might be slightly more practical than you, but think of the wisest person you know. What sets them apart? It's likely to be their ability to see life from a bigger perspective. Their ability to make consistently good choices, to make decisions that almost always have a positive outcome. And I wonder if it's a little bit like this. I wonder if it's sort of like a graduated scale where you've got kind of knowledge, just baseline information and data, and then you kind of apply that knowledge. In in William Durant's description, you organize your life to make life work. But then that next level of wisdom, true wisdom, is someone having a bigger perspective on life, consistently making good decisions. And I don't know about you, but I think true wisdom is rare in our society. Lots of people know lots of information about lots of things, right? 
And plenty of people have a reasonably organized life. Plenty of people can make things work. But not many people seem to have that deeper, broader, fuller perspective on life. Not many people can see things for what they really are. And I think that's a valuable skill. I think people are seeking wisdom. So there was these three men, and they were walking along the road, and, and in the gutter, lying in the gutter, they found a bottle. So one of them picked it up, and poof, out popped a genie, a magic genie. And the genie said, I will grant you each one wish, because he was sort of Irish and sort of Indian. <laughs> and anyway, uh, so the first man said, well, I wish, I wish I was ten times wiser, poof. The genie magically makes him ten times wiser. Well, the second man, he said, I wish I was twenty times wiser. So the genie, poof, magically makes this guy twenty times wiser. The third guy says, I wish I was a hundred times wiser. Poof, he's transformed into a woman. (laughs) Thank you. The ladies love it. The men are like, what? (laughs) Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman here this morning, part of the reason that you are here is I think is because you are seeking wisdom. You believe that life is, is full of substance and meaning and that there is a bigger purpose that each of us has a calling to live, to live well. And to do that takes wisdom. And so being at church... You believe that God has something to do with true wisdom. And so already you've made a wise decision this morning. Congratulations. Good stuff. Well, I believe that the ultimate source of wisdom is God. And if you read through the Bible, you'll see that many of the authors argue that wisdom is actually one of the defining characteristics of God's character. So when he was surveying a whole bunch of the other deities of the ancient world, the gods and the idols of the ancient world. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, God is the only wise God. Or another man, a man called Job, who was literally trying to make sense of his suffering, he said, God is so wise and so mighty. In fact, a couple of chapters on, Job actually expanded his description. He said, true wisdom and power are found in God. Counsel and understanding are his. And so wisdom is an essential characteristic of God, but we need to appreciate that, that the wisdom of God is really the next level. So you think about God's wisdom. He has all knowledge. He knows all things about everything. He knows the details. He knows like a billion trillion zettabytes of data. He knows it all. But he also knows how to apply that knowledge to everyday life. So more than just the what, God knows the why and the how behind everything. And then ultimately, God has wisdom, full, true wisdom. He has a bigger perspective on life. I mean, arguably, he has the biggest perspective on life. His presence is everywhere. He is beyond the time-space continuum that we are kind of confined to. He sees events unfold in a very unique and a very ultimate way. And that's why God's wisdom is limitless. He always chooses the best decision. He always makes the right, uh, makes, chooses the right option. His plans and his purposes always are perfect. He is supremely successful in everything that he does. His purposes are always fulfilled. Now, that's good news for God, right? I mean, it's got to be awesome when everything that 
you think needs to happen in that way ultimately happens in that way. But the reality is it doesn't always feel like that for us. Maybe money's tight. Maybe the kids are being a bit of a handful. Maybe your health's just taken a bad turn, or your future's uncertain, or you're under pressure, or your plans change. In those moments, it's really hard to see the wisdom of God's perspective. I mean, he is sort of operating up here on this high level, and we're kind of stuck down here in the middle of our struggles and our stresses and our strains. We're trying to figure out the point of it all, and it's hard. One of the ancient Jewish prophets, a guy called Isaiah, he captured the tension that a lot of us feel. This is what he wrote in Isaiah chapter 55. He recorded the very words of God. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And that's kind of the next level that God's wisdom is working out. His purposes are global. His plans are universal. God is aligning and shaping and unfolding history in ways that we can never imagine. But sometimes from our perspective, it seems like things are falling apart. And perhaps you are in the midst of some challenges. Maybe you've got some conflict, some confusion, some uncertainty. This morning, I just very simply want to encourage you with three reasons why you can trust God's wisdom. And the first one is this. God shows his wisdom through creation. 3,000 years ago, this is what a very wise man called Solomon wrote. He wrote, By wisdom the Lord founded the earth. By understanding he created the heavens. By his knowledge the deep oceans of the earth burst forth, and the clouds dropped down, clouds dropped down the dew. Did you know that if you drill down 6,000 kilometers, you'll come to the Earth's core, right? 6,000 kilometers, just to put it in perspective, is like four times the length of New Zealand. So New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand, stacked on top of each other, whoosh, straight down, would get us to the Earth's core, right? Interestingly, scientists haven't been there yet, okay? Uh, they've only drilled down, the deepest scientists have ever drilled down is 12 kilometers, okay, which is like here to Fruitlands, so we've got a little bit further to go to get to the core, but um, they've used x-rays, they've used lasers, they've used some complicated math and a really, really long ruler, and they've figured out how deep it is to get to the Earth's core. No one really wants to go there yet, because it is over 6,000 degrees, it's estimated that is how hot it is, 6,000 degrees Celsius at the Earth's core, which is as hot as the surface of the sun, Okay. Let's come back to Earth's surface, and let's say that you dug up a teaspoon of dirt. In that teaspoon of dirt, you would find over one billion microbes. So microbes are just very microscopic organisms, like bacteria and fungi and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of them trapped, <coughs> well, not trapped, in that teaspoon of dirt. In fact, that number billion, that's more than the uh, approximate number of people who live on the African continent. It's quite a big number, okay? Or our oceans. Did you know that 85% of the oxygen in our atmosphere comes from our oceans? 
Not, not specifically the water, but from a little microscopic creature called phytoplankton. So they use a process of photosynthesis to convert sunlight into energy, and one of the byproducts is oxygen, which we breathe. Speaking of oceans, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, some of you might have been there, it's 2,000 kilometres long. It is the world's largest living structure. It covers around 350,000 square, uh, square kilometres, which is enough to fit in 70 million rugby fields. And it's about 25% of the known marine species on the planet live in the Great Barrier Reef. Or the clouds. 5,000 cubic metres of water is contained in the clouds in our atmosphere at any one time. That is actually more than all the waters of all the rivers on earth put together. So maybe Solomon was right when he said God laid the foundations of the earth. He created the heavens, the deep oceans of the earth, and the clouds and the dew. Or perhaps you agree with the uh, ancient songwriter who wrote this, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Did you know that a snail can sleep for up to three years? Imagine being that scientist conducting that experiment. Did you know that a dog's sense of smell is 100,000 times stronger than a human's? Did you know that polar bears have translucent fur? It's see-through. Do you know that a honeybee can flap its wings 200 times a second? Did you know that sea otters hold hands when they're asleep in the water so they don't drift apart? Oh, isn't that cute? Do you know the pattern on a tiger fur is as unique as a human's fingerprint? It is specific to that tiger. Do you know that scientists have only catalogued 15% of the estimated 8 million species on the planet. You know, even a skeptical, uh, cynical skeptic has to be impressed by the design and the detail in our created world. Creation is a witness to the wisdom and the glory of God. God's wisdom uh, also comes out in his plan for salvation. So the Apostle Paul, he introduces uh, this letter to the Christians in the ancient city of Corinth, and he's explaining God's rescue plan. He's talking about how wise God's plan is for the world. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is what he writes. The wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. And so Paul argues that God's got this grand plan to fix things, to restore things, to rescue people, to redeem people, and to bring them back to a relationship with him. And for anybody who doesn't kind of get it, it just seems crazy. Anybody who's fixated on worldly wisdom just doesn't understand how God's wisdom works. This is what he argues. He says, so where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. You know, I really love that line, verse 24. 
Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And what makes the wisdom of God's plan so inspiring for me anyway is that Jesus unites a diversity of people. So if you flicked a few pages over, you'll see that Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Ephesus. And he says that because of Jesus, Jews and non-Jews can have an equal share in the blessings of God. This is what he writes. This is God's plan, plan for salvation. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches uh, inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. Now, at the time of writing, that was a really radical concept. So there was deep racial and ethnic divisions, particularly in the ancient cities. There was often separate, segregated areas for different people groups. Now, perhaps that's not so obvious in modern cities. I mean, yes, there's definitely areas where uh, different people groups congregate together, but perhaps not as strict as it were in ancient times. But there are still, without a doubt, racial and ethnic uh, divisions, and they run deep in our world and deep in New Zealand. And so by bringing different people together, God shows the wisdom of his plans. Look at the next uh, couple of lines. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, God's wisdom is shown in our world when people of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds are united in Jesus and the Christian church. And so under the banner of Jesus, people of all ages and stages are drawn together in the Christian church. You know, no other group on the planet, no other organization, no other institution, no other association comes even close to the Christian church in terms of ethnic and cultural and socioeconomic diversity. So, if the Christian church is going to display the wisdom of God, and that means that Christians need to be at the forefront of breaking down racial and social barriers. So around the world, things like the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter, or in New Zealand, treaty claims, or housing, or poverty, or even the COVID pandemic, they are opportunities for the Christian church to display the wisdom of God's plan, to let everybody know that God's grace and his redemption is on offer. You may have heard of this man, a man called Oscar Romero. He was a Catholic bishop who lived in the South American country of El Salvador. And he worked to bring about social justice uh, in the city that he lived in, in San Salvador. That was not easy in the 1970s. There was a lot of civil unrest, a lot of political uprisings. Poverty was widespread. Crime and oppression was, was really intense. But Oscar Romero reminded Christians of the wisdom of God's plan. On one occasion, he said this, each of you is called to be God's microphone. In other words, we are to amplify, we are to accentuate the wisdom of God's plan of salvation. That's how Oscar Romero tried to live. But in 1980, he was assassinated while he was attending church. A man burst through the doors of the church and shot him through the heart. 
But his influence was so profound that 250,000 people attended his funeral. They saw the wisdom of God lived out in Oscar Romero's life. And that's the third aspect where God's wisdom shines through. God's wisdom is apparent in our lives. That's really where the rubber meets the road. Actually, speaking of roads, I heard about two men recently who crashed their cars together at an intersection, and and both of them got out, and they were very angry, very frustrated, very quick to blame each other for the crash, until finally one said, look, here, and he took a little flask of whiskey out of his pocket, and he offered it to the other guy, and he said, look, we're both tense, why don't you just have a quick nip to help calm our nerves? And the second second man said, well, thanks, that's really helpful, took a big gulp, And he handed the flask back and said, why don't you have one too? And the first guy said, well, I'd rather not. Not until at least after the police have got here. (laughs) Now, I don't think all of our decisions necessarily are wise, right? But God's always are, especially his wisdom when it comes to his people. I want to read to you something that that could be quite familiar. This is a text from Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. He writes this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. Now, maybe you've heard that before, but I still really find it encouraging. If you love God, he is at work in your life, whether you realize it or not. He is involved. He is active. He is working. He is making things happen or not happen. And because of his wisdom, his grace, his sovereignty, his power, his presence, he is pouring that into your life so that you can fulfill the purposes which he has planned for you. And if you're unsure about what those purposes are, look at verse 29. God has chosen his people to be like his son. I love it how the the message um, translation of the Bible phrases it. God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. God is shaping you. God is molding you. God is conforming you. God is aligning you to be just like Jesus. And many of us have a long way to go. Others of you here, you're just a little bit more holy, which is great, but... This whole process that we track through is what theologians call sanctification. It's, it's a journey. And that journey is underscored by God's wisdom. He knows what's happening in your life. In fact, probably some of the good stuff he caused. Some of the bad stuff he probably allowed. And some of the really bad stuff he probably blocked. His wisdom is at work in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I find that particularly comforting, especially at the times when life doesn't make sense. Because that's arguably the greatest truth about God's wisdom, is that it comforts us in tough times. More than just comforts us. God is willing to generously share his wisdom with us. James puts it like this. If you need wisdom... Ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. I think if we're honest, 
all of us probably need some more wisdom. We have plenty of knowledge. We know lots of stuff. We have access to unlimited information. But true wisdom, living well, making good choices, seeing the bigger picture, trusting that God's got it under control, that's what we need. And so James says we can look, simply ask. God's generous with his wisdom. He loves to give. He loves to bless his people, especially when they need his wisdom. So we're just going to pause for a moment and ask God for wisdom. I'm going to suggest that you do that. Some of you, I know, are facing some big challenges. You've got some family issues going on, a health diagnosis, a job offer, some future plans. You've got significant decisions to make. And your family and your friends have chipped in. Your doctor's offered advice. Your counselor might have offered advice. Your lawyer's offered advice for a ridiculous fee. And you're just not sure what to do. So I invite you to pause and quietly ask God for his wisdom. What would he have you do? What option is best? And crucially, how is this experience shaping you to be like Jesus? So just in the quiet, take some time to do that now. You know, I find it mind-blowing that God offers to share his wisdom with us. And perhaps now, or perhaps even a previous time of your life, you have found his wisdom helpful. But you've also got to understand that in his wisdom, God chooses not to share all of his wisdom with us. So in one of his letters to the Christians at Rome, Paul unpacks this plan of God and he spends 11 chapters kind of explaining it all. And then at the end of that of that section, Paul bursts into this spontaneous praise, and this is what he writes. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. You know, the reality is there are times when we don't understand the decisions God makes or why he allows things to happen the way they do. But in those moments, we are called to trust that his plans are working out. We're called to have faith that he sees the bigger picture, and we can have comfort in his limitless wisdom. So I just want to finish by sharing a letter with you. It's, it's written from God's perspective, so there's a degree of poetic license in it, but I think it captures the essence of God's wisdom and the trust that he asks us to have. This is what it says. My precious child, I am in control. I'm able to make things happen the way I want them to go. Yes, I allow you to make your own choices. And I know you don't fully understand how my sovereignty and your agency can operate side by side. But I'm able to work within and around the choices you make so my ultimate purposes will succeed. For this, you must trust me. I know life doesn't always work out the way you'd hoped. But remember, I'm still in control. Trust me, I'll use it for your good. Ask me about your choices and plans. My wisdom is yours if you'll only ask. Lovingly, your heavenly Father, the King. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful that you are the source of ultimate wisdom. We see your wisdom and the beauty of creation and the simplicity of salvation and practically in our own lives. And we just ask that you would be generous with your wisdom, especially 
when we're finding life doesn't make sense. Help us to see the bigger picture. Help us to see that, have that broader perspective. And help us to trust you that you've got things under control because of your limitless wisdom. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.